the overriding theme behind Egypt that fueled Egypt through 3,000 years of almost uninterrupted peace, prosperity, and religion was the doctrine of immortality, the idea that we human beings are of divine origin and through our own internal efforts we can we can re-establish within ourselves that connection and ourselves become divine. The embodiment of that principle was the Pharaoh himself. And here we see Ramses II, um, one of the very greatest of the Egyptian pharaohs, certainly its most prodigious builders, proclaiming himself in that guise. Here at Abu Simbel, on the great days of October 22nd and February 22nd, supposedly the birthday and coronation day of the king himself, we see a phenomenon that is, you might call, the, the physical manifestation of illumination. Here at Abu Simbel, we will be looking at this principle of immortality, at the sacred science, at the idea of illumination, which is not contingent upon electricity, as our modern scholars seem to think. Welcome back to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. This is episode 44. And we're going to continue with our series, John Anthony West, Magical Egypt. It's an eight-part series. I recommend, uh, if you're enjoying this, go back to episode 38, where we do part one. And I give a brief introduction and a description. You know, a little, uh, you know, fill in some blanks and stuff and give my opinion on, on, on the series and on Egypt and on ancient Egypt and such. It's a little edifying. It's kind of good. I recommend you go back to episode 38 and listen to this part one of Magical Egypt by John Anthony West. Again, support John Anthony. I believe he passed away, but support him, his family, you know, buy, buy the eight DVD set if you can afford it. Uh, it's well worth it. I'm not sure what the price is. I think it's on Amazon, but you, you're always better off getting it from John Anthony West, you know, to support his legacy. Um... Hopefully you're you're enjoying this and you're getting some value out of it. Like I said, I am for sure. I'm enjoying this. And uh, it's a great series, man. It's amazing. So, yeah, this is, again, episode 44 of the podcast. And we're going to continue with the eight-part series, Magical Egypt, John Anthony West. This is part seven of the eight-part series. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it.
work of stupendous magnitude and quite incredible perfection. It marks the furthest southern extent of the Egyptian Empire during the time of Ramses, which is about 12, 11 something. He reigned for 66 years, so it's most of the 12th century, or a big chunk of the 12th century. Uh, the reasons for building it here, well, it marks the, as I said, it marks the, the, the southern extent of the empire. And he's not exactly saying, beware. He's not, he's not really saying, I mean, the king is not, it looks like boasting, but it's not boasting. Basically what he's saying is that here the forces of light begin. What it, what it represents esoterically is, and this is by common agreement as well, I and mean, the Egyptologists wouldn't really disagree with that, it's the king, it's the king as a god, the king as, as the realization, put it this way, the king as the realization of the divine principle during his lifetime. I think, it, I think that's what makes this temple unique. Always the king is of divine birth. That's part of the canon, part of the metaphysical physical doctrine from the very beginnings of Egypt. That's there. What seems to be, what Ramses seems to be saying here is that he has achieved divinity within his lifetime. The Temple of Abu Simbel is a marvel of engineering and a masterpiece of symbolic architecture. The temple was engineered to commemorate the birthday and coronation day of the pharaoh. It is aligned in such a way as to capture the first rays of the rising sun on these two special days. And if you're here, boy, if you're here on that day, actually the day itself is always an absolute zoo. The place is always full as you have to get here at 4.30 in the morning to even be close to the head of the line. But if you get there and watch this, you know, the, I mean, this is, this is a very, a very good lighting man at work who comes up in the east. And this thing, I mean, you're sitting there in the darkness and it's you know, getting a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter. I mean, all of a sudden the sun, gets, the sun gets over the horizon. If it's a clear day nowadays, not everything's clear. And it just it lights up like that. And everybody in the... In the, everyone in the temple goes, oh. and then you watch, it takes about 15 minutes or to sweep across the, and light up the four gods in turn, and it's, it's quite a, it is quite an experience. The light penetrates the temple to its very core, and lights the four deity statues within. The whole idea of architecture is to design a monument that provides the, the machinery of the ritual to, to become alive. So that's what he's done. He's, he's integrated the, 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 the symbolism, the mythology that surrounds the king and uses the, 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 the light of the sun in order to bring the temple to activate the temple, it's like a, it's like inserting a battery. They didn't have batteries. Like I did with my camera, it won't work unless I put the batteries. Well, their battery was the sun. The sun rises at a certain day, at certain times of the year, and parts of the temple become alive in in the correct order, correct mythological order.
Well, it is. It's a clock. It's it's a it's a uh, it's frozen time. That's what they are. I mean, it is marking or it is commemorating a time, and the time is the coronation of the king, or some argue his birth. But what the architect did is that he used time, and time is astronomy. Time is the position of the sun. So he locks the temple to time. But not just that. I mean, he's simply not pointing the temple to the sunrise on that particular day, which is the 22nd of October. He is also using what the sun does on that day, at its rising, in order to tell the story. So he's designed it as such, so that it works in this way. He's put symbols that represent the first activity of the sun, the baboons, as I explained, at the top of the temple, and so forth. So finally, when the light strikes at the right position, in perfect conjunction with the axis, he gets the, the apotheosis. The apotheosis is that the king is divinized. That's the whole idea. The whole idea of of, of a king is to confirm his divinity and to renew his divinity at the jubilee. So. That's what this temple does. It still does it without the priesthood, without the, the king, because it's frozen. The temple is frozen in time, as is the understanding of the underlying patterns and rules of the universe. The temples are permanent repositories describing the mysteries and the interconnection between them in that other vast mirror realm, our consciousness. Statuary represents the, the living people at the time. They truly believe this, and, and in many ways, one could argue that they do. Uh, these statues are not statues; they're talismans. They are regarded as having absorbed the essence of the principles they represent, and they do because what the, what he's achieved is that. King essence as the divine king, as the Horus king, is the sun. But his his transmission is coming to earth at a specific time, which we call the 22nd of October, was when the sun was in this position. So in short, the statue becomes alive, if you like, and becomes the essence of the sun on that day. He's achieved the nearest one can with architecture to to express this. Author Robert Bouval explores the temples as magical technology in his upcoming book, Talisman. In short, the temple is is only stone if you don't understand its symbolism, and the temple 
is only stone if you do not integrate with it. No, it's really pretty <laughs> or evocative. But that's not what it's supposed to be. The temple is a talisman that needs to be activated by your presence. Today here we're standing alone in the temple of Abusim. Incredible situation. We're being affected partially by the symbolism we see, by the harmony of the architecture, but in no way to the degree that an initiate, full initiate would be. In short, we're inside the hardware, but we're not charged with the software that has not been initiated. Whereas had you been initiated in the fullest sense of Egyptian initiation, temple initiation, then you would have been a software which is programmed to interact with the temple. You wouldn't be here talking to me, you'd be exalting uh, with the statuaries and the symbolism. You would explode here, intellectually and spiritually. Hieroglyphs as an expression of high ancient symbolism are the crossing of language and magic. This very misunderstood technology works with the brain of the initiate to evoke a dense and richly complicated web or matrix of meanings and associations. Hieroglyphs are charged. They are collapsed ideas. In some cases, they can be entire schools collapsed into a single image. To the initiate, to that person, who has been given the keys to understanding the many visual and geometric clues. The hieroglyphs are magical talismans, each capable of exploding into a whirlwind of ideas, associations, understandings, lessons, deep and mysterious arcana. Hieroglyphs are even employed as a repeatable means of rapidly evoking unusual states of consciousness. Symbolism isn't something that is simply told by a teacher to a pupil. Uh, part of it is, but the major uh, labor of understanding a symbol is to experience it. So it takes a long, long time. I may try to explain to you till I'm blue in the face what my symbol means. I'm wearing, for example, an ankh and a, and a Christian talisman. But even though I may explain it to you, I still won't be able to project to you my fullest feeling about what this means to me, the experience that, that brought me to wear this, and, and, and what it causes in me intellectually and spiritually. Uh, when I do consider the talisman, very often touch it. The only way is that you are me and have experienced the same thing. So you need to experience. And, 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 and therefore we learn more and more about symbols, we learn more and more about the temple. You could come here after, you know, for hundreds of times, but as you can see it's loaded with details and every detail is charged with this kind of meaning. You're not come to, the idea is not to sort of wander around and take a few photographs and go out. The idea is to stay here 
and, 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 and meditate at, at corners to ponder on the on the on, on the on the on the meaning of the of the symbols that you see, on the sceneries, on the reliefs, on the, on the effects of light. And it would take you years to to discharge the information of the temple into your mind, so that when you do finally reach that stage, you are completely one with the temple. So then you can move faster, but then you, the speed of your understanding, the trigger that is unleashed every time you pass next to a symbol, works faster. Like computers' use of hierarchy, hieroglyphs are icons. They are folders, containing as much as we have loaded into the folders through the process of successive initiations. They are magical icons which command and cause a desired brain state. They are programs which perform to the extent that we have installed the upgrades. Like the comparison between a Pentium 1 and a Pentium 4. If you, if you see the analogy, you, you, you start here being totally unprogrammed and you begin slowly to be programmed. And, and the temple becomes more active because you are more receptive. And finally, you've got a hardware which has the capacity of a, of a Pentium 4, whatever you call it, and you are a program that is perfectly designed to interact with that speed. And you discharge your, 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 your initiation, and the temple discharged, and you both interact to produce this, this ultimate result of, 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 of full understanding by simply looking at the objects. The temple becomes like a, like a silent teacher, and you are the perfect pupil. idea of statuary, the whole idea of temples, but take statuary as a, as a more obvious example, is not the way we see it as artwork. It is artwork in the sense that it is magnificent regard and pleasing to see, but to them a statue was the, 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 the body, the, 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 the permanent body. They chose materials that would last in order for the talismanic qualities of the principle, be it the king or be it the divinity, to inhabit. Now how did they do this? It, it wasn't a question of hocus pocus of saying I've made a statue of the king and therefore the king is in here. They fed it, in a sense, with meaning. The same way we would create meaning in an object. Many people have talisman without being aware of it. You know, a wedding ring, a favorite teddy bear, you know. These are talismans because they are fed with meaning. So the object is not just an object, it is imbued with meaning. So this is how they did it. They fed it with meaning so that when, when an initiate would come into the temple, you would not see the statue. You would see the representation of, of the king with all its qualities, the essence of, of, of the principles. The principle may be 
the stars, maybe the, 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 the flood of the Nile, maybe the king, maybe a divinity, maybe an idea. You know, uh, an object, uh, you, you may be wearing a, a ring because it represents your, uh, your fraternity at, at, uh, at university. But therefore this ring is imbued with the idea that of your membership to this fraternity, all the people who belong to it, the friendships that you made there, the, 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 the experiences that you had. So that ring to you has that meaning. When you see that ring, you see beyond it. That's how they thought. They, they realized correctly that if that the mind responds to this kind of object, to, to, to talismans. And talismans, talismans can be anything. Statues, temples, even uh, natural objects, a flower. And think of a flower that is given on the day of you propose to your, to your future wife. She takes the flower, she dries it and puts it in a book. Sees that flower 20 years later, wow, she breaks into tears, right? That's the power of imbuing. That's how it works. That's how we are made to work. They cleverly understood this and they cleverly combined it with architecture. So architecture becomes the, 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 the material expression of the immaterial force of talisman. Architecture is meant for that. It's not meant to make blocks so we can go and work in offices. Architecture is the... the, the, the is, they used to call it the, the, the royal art because it was for... for, for, for architecture was for religious purposes. They didn't consider architecture when you build a hut and live there. This is not architecture. What we call architecture is, to them, the notion of designing a temple was in the hands of those who were initiated to do so. They were, they were, they were priests, they were astronomers, they were those who had studied symbols, they were magicians. And the product of their labor is these temples. An architect isn't simply a guy who designs shapes, he's a man who use the, uh, in, in his design, the culture idea behind the building, be it a temple, be it a church, be it a cathedral, even be it a bank. If he succeeds in that, then he's achieved his, his objective. Otherwise, he's merely creating a box or, or, or a sphere or whatever he's doing. There is a whole game of light, I mean, getting down to the basics of physics. And as I explained, the, the, the temple is aligned in such a way that it receives light at specific times of the year and of the day in order to, 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 to activate the various parts of the temple, the various symbols. It is a symphony of light that is frozen for most of the year and becomes active, defrosts on the 22nd of October. So, so if you're here on that day and you are initiated, better still, if you were the king, you were Ramses II, and you would come here. This temple is the material uh, uh, and symbolic representation of yourself, of your life, of your coronation, of your birth, of, of your achievement. Can you imagine the effect that the king had when he integrated with the solar light, with the temple, and with himself? He must have 
blown his mind to his to tremendous exaltation. When we return, the talisman is a neat little package of spiritual force. You know, in magic, you can't even ignore puns and plays on words, because words themselves are magical tools. And when we talk about hieroglyphs as talismanic objects, uh, it is not too far-fetched to treat hieroglyphs as logos. They're magical logos. And of course, logos in Greek means the word. Okay, the the transmitting, the transmitting power of the universe. Because everything in the universe is connected to everything else. It's not far-fetched, and it's highly permissible in magic to incorporate puns in your understanding of the universe around you. The reason I'm bringing the word pun up is because. And we're talking about the talismanic virtues of the Egyptian hieroglyphs, or hieroglyphs in general. Uh, we may as well use the modern term, their logos, in the same way as corporate logos uh, communicate a vast amount of information in a cute, easy-to-remember image. Where the puns come in is the Greek word for the word, or the communicating uh, entity of the universe, is logos, and that's exactly what the magical hieroglyphs are acting as. They are the word. They're communicating much, much more than just one or two ideas. They're they're literally vibrating with the vibration that holds the universe together. That's responsible for creation. Um, hieroglyph is a logo. A hieroglyph is a logos. A talisman is an inanimate object that someone makes animate. That's the broad definition of the term. A talisman is endowed with specific magical properties. It's different than an, an amulet. An amulet is something you, you wear as a protection against something else. A talisman is something that someone actually endows with magical force of a specific nature. Uh, it could be something just as simple as uh, a sentimental object or, or souvenir of some kind that when you look at it years later, it evokes an emotional response. All the even sounds and smells, the talisman can, uh, can be incense. Anything that, that evokes that, that auto-response 
uh, is a talismanic object. Even your best putter, if you're a golfer, the putter that you perform miracles with is a, in, in a way a talismanic object. Even the alphabet, the individual letters of the alphabet are talismans in a way because they convey to us or can convey to us far greater, far more profound meanings than just the A, B, C, D, E. The Hebrew alphabet in particular is is almost hieroglyphic in nature in that the individual letter not only stands for um, the letter, the consonant sound itself, but uh, an object of some kind. Aleph means ox, but it also is the, the, the number one. But imagine all of the, the things that ox means, though. It's just not the, the beast. It represents power and fertility and and all sorts of other things. And if you learn the Hebrew alphabet at the same time that you're learning all of these other collateral meanings, then it becomes rich, rich in meaning, universal meanings. And as you see the individual words made out of individual letters, whether you know it or not, you're still processing all of that information. Another thing that a talisman is often confused with is a panticle. A panticle is the magician's uh, is a diagram of the magician's total understanding of the universe. In other words, it's a symbolic picture of the magician's world view. Talismans can be a part of a of a panticle. The tarot, the 78 cards of the tarot, would be a panticle. Actually, it's a mercurial pentacle. The 78 cards of the tarot are often called the Book of Thoth, or the Book of Thoth, the Egyptian Mercury. The tarot is a pentacle in that it becomes a mandala of the entire universe. You can put everything in the universe within those cards. But the individual cards themselves are more in the nature of a talisman, because they represent specific forces within the universe, isolated, cozy, all in one neat little package. A talisman is a neat little package of spiritual force. Here's another example of a of a pentacle. This is my personal pentacle. Like I said, a pentacle is the magician's worldview. And here we have uh, four versions of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And uh, there's a Tree of Life for each of the four Kabbalistic worlds. And each of those four Kabbalistic worlds uh, is an embodiment of the powers and energy in the Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh -Heh, uh, formula. It's more than a deity, it's a formula. The occult secret of the fourfold structure of the universe is also expressed in the symbolism of Abu Simbel. The presence of four figures and their divine attributions is itself the sacred and revered revelation of the Tetragrammaton, the primal formula for cyclic life and the foundation of the universe. So here at Abu Simbel, 
on the great days of October 22nd, February 22nd, supposedly the birthday and coronation day of the king himself, we see a phenomenon that is, you might call, the, the physical manifestation of illumination. What happens here is, as the sun rises, it gets above the horizon, shoots through the nave of the, this extraordinary temple, and illuminates in turn the four figures of Ta, Amon, the king, and Raharakti. It's a cosmological and also an internal lesson to be learned from this. Straight down the shaft there and hands across the four figures in the sanctuary in, in sequence. And the sequence is, is, is Pa on this side, then Amon, then the king, and then Raharakti. And why those, why those four are in that sequence, I think I know. And that is that it's again like, as at, as at Abydos, it's a total cosmology written into the, into the figures of the gods and the king. Ta is architect of heaven and earth. Amon is the animating spirit of the universe. The king represents the synthesis of, let's say, of, of organic creation. And Raharakti, it's a fusion of Ra and Horus, the solar principle, and Horus, the principle of, of, of salvation return to the source represents the ability of humanity to again become divine so it is it goes in a sequence in other words, it's a progression from creation of the universe to return of humanity to the to its divine source there are four of them here because they represent the four cardinal directions and the four elements in all likelihood the four the four square of matter after I learned the first three numbers, I was given to understand the great law of four, the Alpha and Omega of all. I am the great law, the Emperor said. I am the name of God. The four letters of his name are in me, and I am in all. I am in the four principles. I am in the four elements. I am in the four cardinal points. I am in the four signs of the tower. I am the beginning, I am action, I am completion, I am the result. For him who knows how to see me, there are no mysteries on earth. There is a belief in ancient and modern occult circles that activity carried out on the astral plane can influence events that transpire on the physical plane. The hieroglyphs depicting the events of the Battle of Kadesh may have in fact been a kind of magical activity employed to assure and perpetuate the victory of the king. The outcome of the battle is written in stone. Go inside and you'll see in the first hall the eight figures, the king as Osiris, the, the eight figures of them. And then on either wall, on that wall, the Battle of Kadesh. No one's 100% certain how real this battle is, but it, it's probably one of those instances where symbolism conforms to the symbolism conforms to the 
to the actual history. And the story is that the king is in the company of his four armies under the armies of Ta, Amon, Ra, and Set, interestingly enough. And he's, he's, he's with his, his armies, but he's, he's out in the, a couple of informers come from the enemy, or the Hittites in this case. And they say that the Hittites have all flown camp, they're afraid of him. You know, he can march in by himself and sort of claim the victory. So these are actually spies. And when he, so he goes in advance of his own army, all by himself, and suddenly there's the enemy. He's trapped, they've got him. So he, he launches this immense prayer to Amon, very poetic prayer, to Amon, who comes to his aid, and single-handed he slays a hundred thousand of the enemy and throws them into the river. And then his armies catch up with him. And so written into that, into that um, northern wall is the whole story of this, um, of, of, this, uh, of this battle. And it's, it's very intricately wrought. And there still seems to be quite a bit of a Marna influence there. So it's, it's rather more lively and animated than you would expect out of strictly classical. Even though this is quite a time, you know, this is about 50 or 60 years after, after um, Akhenaten maybe even a bit more, uh, still, you see that Omarna style here. This is Nefertari's temple, who was Ramses' royal queen, and <clears throat> from, the, from the evidence, it would seem fairly reasonable to uh, suggest that I mean, this was a real, this was not just an arranged marriage, I've really seen very, very fond of each other. And uh, <clears throat> the king is, as you know, is the living Horus in life, and the queen is the living Hathor. Although I just read in this rather good book that I've done on Abu Simbo in French, that the, the headdress that she's wearing here is not just Hathor, but is um, Sepedet, is, is serious. go in here you'll see that the it's not that the artwork is better than the artwork in Ramses but it's there's something about it this is a very special place as special as a Stelai temple actually everything is in yellow because it's the queen the queen is and the queen's name is in a cartouche so in other words she's divine as well and eternal and when you go in you'll see the Hathor columns, and on your left, a very interesting, one of the rare scenes of um, Horus and Set empowering the king, and the king is reconciling the otherwise irre irreconcilable principles. Set and Horus are eternally opposed. They are polarities. They are yin and yang, positive and negative, they are spirit and matter. They're empowering the king, and the king is the king in between them is is, is is the reconciling principle between these otherwise absolutely irreconcilable polarities. In in Egypt and all of the other gods or principles are, are in triads in which there's a in which there's an active and a passive or a masculine and a feminine and a 
reconciling or a child of the two. And here, with Horace and Set, there is no reconciliation. That's our job, is to reconcile the Horace and Set principles. The Pharaoh, symbolic of every man, or mankind in general, brings reconciliation of the two through balance. The reconciling of opposite polarities is another deep occult secret which finds an echo from our most distant past. We see in this the eternal struggle between left and right brain, between logic and intuition, between waking and dream state, between linear and abstract thinking, between the secular and the sacred. Set, set is the power that imprisons spirit in matter. And Horus is the power that releases spirit from matter. And so they're forever at war because left to his own devices, uh, Set will never let go. Um, and left to his own devices, Horus is helpless. Only the king who represents the king who represents the, the possibility of reconciliation can, can affect that, 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 that reconciliation of opposites and allow, you might say, allow the universe to proceed, allow the processes of the universe to take place. Another aspect of Horus and Set might be seen as symbolizing the inner and outer worlds. We, as the Pharaoh, are the mediator or the reconciling element between the two. It's the only sculpture in the round I know of in Abu Simbel in the marvelous Hathor Chapel in the Nefertari Temple. You see a similar scene, but to see it in the round is very impressive. And that's the king's role within the grand cosmic scheme. That's what we're here for. That's what us human beings are here for, which is to reconcile the opposing, the opposing forces of, of spirit and matter. And in theory, if we do that, that's what um, enables us to bump up on the cosmic scale and um, get rid of these bodies, but our consciousness lives on. That's the theory, and I personally subscribe to it. And imagine doing all of this stuff that the Egyptians were doing if they didn't not believe that it was true, but knew that it was true. Magical Egypt will return in a moment. Magical Egypt. So here at Abu Simbel, on the great days of October 22nd and February 22nd, supposedly the birthday and coronation day of the king himself, we see a phenomenon that is, you might call, the, the physical manifestation of illumination. The most, the most, um, the favored explanation, and I think probably the most, the most likely to be true, is that this, these days correspond to the, um, to the birthday and coronation day of Ramses, because they don't have any astronomical significance. It's not a solstice, it's not an equinox, it's not a cross-quarter, it has no, 
special astronomical significance, but it does have it does have that particular personal significance. The coronation day might be seen as the day that the king received the light. Illumination is experienced by all who grasp the symbolism presented here. The light of consciousness connects the four inner deities with the outer four. Illumination is the recognition of the connectedness of the inner world with the outer. These ideas have percolated down through history after Egypt fell in fragmented form, sometimes degenerate, sometimes debased, sometimes running off tangentially, but nevertheless keeping that flame alive. It's a peculiar thing that over the course of the last century, and now the beginnings of the 21st, a number of extraordinary scholars, scientists, teachers, esotericists, have succeeded in putting together and reformulating that ancient doctrine in a way that makes it not only comprehensible but to a considerable extent comprehensive. We now have at our fingertips the potential material to reformulate that ancient doctrine in a manner commensurate to our 21st century minds which are perhaps unfortunately largely rationalistic. It's what Shvala de Lubitsch called thinking with the heart is an essential of understanding what went on in the past and equally essential in attempting to in, in attempting to reestablish another civilization based upon the same principles but undoubtedly very different in outward form and aspect. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening and namaste.